You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings to us today. And as we open the Bible together and look at a picture of you found in the Gospel of John, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit for spiritual things are spiritually discerned. May we see you more clearly, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start in John chapter one, a good place to begin, and I invite you to turn there to the opening verses of this unique gospel, the gospel of John chapter one, beginning in verse one. We read this, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This morning I wish to communicate three ideas to you. Number one, the Word of God creates reality. Idea number two, Faith is the bridge by which we enter into that reality. And number three, the reality of the Word of God is more trustworthy than the evidence of our senses. And I'll say those three one more time. Number one, the Word of God creates reality. Number two, faith is the bridge by which we enter into that reality. And number three, The reality of the Word of God is more trustworthy than the evidence of our senses. So let's start with idea number one, that the Word of God creates reality. The Gospel of John opens by presenting Jesus as the Word that created everything. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And we notice, of course, the parallels between Genesis 1 verse 1 and John 1 verse 1. It is unmistakable unmistakable that John's intent is to tell us that it is this Jesus Christ that he spent three and a half years with here on earth. This is the same divine being that created everything. Now, when we look at the creation record there in Genesis chapter 1, we see that yes, indeed, God created on the first five and a half days, right? By his word, God spoke and he said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. And as we work our way through creation week, when God speaks, reality emerges. That's very different than what happens when any of us speak. I can look around this room and I can say there's a camera over here. There's a big screen up there. Um, there's, There's chairs here. There's people scattered around. There's a piano. And it's all true. Those things are there, but all I can do is describe what God has already put into place. But God has to be careful when he speaks, right? Because if he says there's an organ over here, suddenly there will be an organ over there on the other side of the platform. So when God speaks, when the word of God speaks, reality is created. And Jesus always changes reality, doesn't he? Think of all of the stories we have in the Bible and the stories that I hope you have in your life. When Jesus shows up, the picture changes, doesn't it? You can take 
a ragtag bunch of slaves that have just escaped from Egypt. And here they are standing in an impossible situation with mountains on either side, a great sea in front of them, and a very angry army behind them. A hopeless situation until Jesus shows up. And now there's a new reality, a new bridge or land bridge, so to speak, by which they can walk forward into a new life. You can take three Hebrews, young boys, that find themselves captives in the land of Babylon, and they are in an impossible situation. Bow down and worship this image, or you'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. What do you do if you choose to remain faithful to God? An impossible situation that completely turns itself upside down when Jesus shows up and walks with them in those flames of fire. We can look through the Gospels and all of these miracle stories of Jesus. This dead person raised, this, this girl raised to life, this blind person healed, and reality is created when the Word shows up. So one of my questions to you this morning is, how has God shown up in your life? What testimony do you have that the Word of God, the Bible, and the living Word, Jesus Christ, what is your testimony of how they have created a new reality in your life? I'm sure there are many wonderful stories we could share here. And have you shared it with others? You know, there are people that you can reach that nobody else can. There are people that will identify with your background, your experiences, your history. And God is relying on you to share with them. And if you don't share with them, who will? So, we each have a story. And if you feel like you don't, ask God, Give me an experience that I can share. But I'll warn you, don't pray that prayer until you're ready for his answer because sometimes God's answers are surprising, aren't they? The Word of God creates reality. I would like to share with you a story uh, in my life. This is the first time I really knew for myself that God existed, but more, more than that, I, I never doubted that he existed, but I knew for myself that he existed and that he loved me personally. And there's a difference there, isn't there? We'll look at these verses in a few minutes in Hebrews chapter 11, but faith begins by believing that God exists. But that's not the end of faith. That is the very beginning of faith. God wants to bring us to the place where we know that he exists, yes, but we also know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves us personally and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him diligently. It was halfway through my college experience uh, at Union College. This was the summer of 1998. And somehow, I had gotten myself talked into being a boys counselor at Flag Mountain Camp in South Dakota. And unfortunately for me, I had discovered about three days into my summer experience that I didn't really want to be a boys counselor all summer long at summer camp. But here I was. And so I was determined to do my best to make the best of it. And as the week started ticking by, my attitude started to slip. And I really wasn't enjoying what I was doing too much. And um, I just entered one of those downward spirals that we can get ourselves into. And by the time I reached the midpoint of that counseling experience, I was in a pretty bad place emotionally and, and spiritually, just feeling sorry for myself. 
And so I took one of my days off in the middle of the week there in early July, and I just threw my backpack into my car and said, I'm going to find a place to hike. Flag Mountain Camp is in the Black Hills, so there's lots of beautiful hiking trails that you can find. And I put in a little bit of food, and almost as an afterthought, I threw in my Bible. And off I went. Found my parking place, hit the hiking trail, and it was a beautiful day out. The sun was shining, but there was a cloud hovering over me, if you can identify with that. And as I was hiking, all I, could, I, I was not noticing the birds singing. I wasn't noticing the beautiful scenery. All I was focused on was poor me. Have you ever been there? Lord, why did you send me here all summer long? What's the point of this? This isn't fun. I didn't notice the gathering storm clouds on the horizon. I was so focused on my own storm inside. And I remember at one point, I had hiked about an hour or so, and I tried to jump across a little creek, and I slipped on the wet stones, and, and I sprained my ankle. And so now I'm hobbling as well, and that didn't help my attitude either. And I did not notice the approaching storm until it just broke in all of its fury. And it had everything. It had the rain, it had the wind, it had lightning, there was even some hail. And here I am an hour and a half from my car, where do you hide out in the wilderness? And I looked around and I realized that I was actually standing on the edge of uh, a campground, another one. And I thought, where in the world do you hide from a storm like this? And the only place, I kid you not, was the outhouse, standing on the corner there of the campground. And I knew I wasn't going to sit in that for the next 10 or 20 minutes. So I did the best thing I could. I curled up under the eaves of this outhouse and I decided, I guess I'll wait out the storm here. Well, by this time, I was drenched, I was wet. Remember, my ankle is twisted, it's starting to swell up. My attitude is still pretty sour, and so I start searching through my backpack. I consume the water and the little bit of food that I had brought, and now what do you do? The storm is still blowing, and I look through my backpack again and pulled out my Bible. And I opened it kind of at random, and it fell open to the story of Elijah. Not the part of his story where he's on Mount Carmel. The part of the story where he is running from Queen Jezebel. And as I read his story, which I had read many times before, but today something clicked. Has that ever happened? Where you, you've read this passage many times before, but on this day something clicks because God is speaking directly to you. And I read through Elijah's story as he climbs that mountain and maybe he sprained his ankle too, but I know he is feeling sorry for himself just like I was. And he hides in the cave, which I, I was wishing for a cave rather than the outhouse at that moment. And God speaks to Elijah, and Elijah discovers a personal God who is not only zealous for his people Israel, not only zealous that truth be upheld, but a God that loves him and a God that ran with him for 40 days as he fled from Jezebel. And that totally transforms Elijah's experience, doesn't it? And so I am reading Elijah's story, and God uses that story to touch my heart. And as I finished his story, the storm was finally moving on, and the sun was starting to come back out, and the birds were starting to sing again. And I was drenched from head to toe. My ankle was as big as a balloon, I was a little bit hungry, but I was happy because I realized 
and I still look back on this, as I said, the first time I can remember where I knew God loved me personally. And no matter what was happening around me, there was a new reality that came from the Word of God. Now, I'm a trumpet player, and so as I was growing up in music, and I'm ashamed to admit this, I had this thing about not singing. I play trumpet, I don't sing. Maybe some of you can identify. But as I walked back for an hour and a half to my car, I was singing, which for me was a new song, literally. <laughs> I didn't do that. I love singing now. So point number one, the Word of God creates reality. And Jesus wants to do the same thing in each of our lives that he did for Elijah, that he did for me back at summer camp. He wants to do the same thing for you. Idea number two this morning is that faith is the bridge by which we pass from whatever reality we are living in now to that better reality that Jesus has for us. Is there anybody here this morning from the Upper Peninsula? Amen. amen. I heard a strong amen from the front row. I see a few other hands here. Now, if I were to have a conversation with any of you from what I have been told, the Upper Peninsula is an amazing place to be from. More amens. That's right. And if you were to tell me how wonderful the Upper Peninsula is, that life is better here, you need to come and visit. Even better than that, you need to come and move here. I could talk to you. I could listen to you. You could send me pictures, right, of all the beauty that you have up there. You could send me text messages. You could help me plan my trip. I could work out an itinerary. I could even envision myself being there. But until I cross a big bridge and actually go across that bridge, I cannot experience the reality of the Upper Peninsula. And you understand the message, right? We can talk to people who have a living experience with Jesus Christ. We can read about people that have crossed that bridge of faith. We can even imagine ourselves living in a different spiritual reality. But until we actually take the step of faith and walk across that bridge, we cannot experience it for ourselves. Now, there's probably nothing that dangerous or difficult about getting in a car and driving across the Mackinac Bridge, unless perhaps you're afraid of heights. But when Jesus calls us personally to walk across the bridge of faith into whatever reality it is that he has for us, it is almost always difficult. And it often seems dangerous. Case in point, let's look at Abraham's story for just a few minutes. Now, Abraham is regarded today, he's identified in the Bible as the father of what? the father of the faithful. And he receives that title primarily because of one experience in his life. And that is when God wakes him up in the middle of one night. Let's go to the story in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Now God had spoken to Abraham numerous times before this night. And almost always when God spoke to him, it was good news. It was full of blessings and encouragement and this vision of a greater reality that God has for him and for his posterity. I will make of you a great nation. 
Your descendants will be as the sand of the seashore, as the stars of heaven. And Abraham looks forward to these conversations with God, doesn't he? Because they're always full of hope and promises and good news. And so on this night, as God speaks to Abraham, Abraham probably wakes up eager like little Samuel did. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Genesis 22, verse 1 says, It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. Speak, Lord. I can't wait to hear the great reality that you're going to spread out before me once again. Verse 2 goes on, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. God is calling Abraham to begin a journey across a bridge of faith that will bring him into a greater reality of trust in God. But there is no more difficult path that God could have woken Abraham up to that night. To me, one of the most amazing verses in the Bible does not exist. It's the one sandwiched between Genesis 22, verse 2, and verse 3. Because verse 3 simply begins this way, and Abraham rose up early in the morning and he obeyed. But you have to know there was a lot happening between the moment that God tells Abraham to go and offer his son and when Abraham actually gets up and obeys. In the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, we are told that Abraham pleads with God for a confirming sign to verify that this is actually the voice of God. How many of you would ask for a confirming sign? Yes, we all would, wouldn't we? And we can look through the history of the Bible at all the great heroes of faith, and almost all of them do the same thing because we're all human, right? When God speaks, when he challenges us, when he calls us across the bridge of faith, our natural response is to ask for a confirming sign. Look at Moses. God says, go back to Pharaoh, go back to Egypt and tell him to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, or uh, Moses says, give me a sign. And so God gives him some signs, right? Throw down your staff and it becomes a snake. Put your hand into your coat and he pulls it out and it's full of leprosy. God answers that prayer. King Hezekiah, when the prophet Isaiah tells him that he will be healed of his sickness, he says, give me a sign. And God actually reverses the spin of the earth for a few minutes, doesn't he? To give that king a confirming sign. Gideon, when, God, when the angel says, I have called you to go and deliver my people, Gideon says, not once, but at least twice, give me a sign, right? And God answers. He gives him a sign. Think of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. When the angel tells him, you and Elizabeth will have a baby boy, he says what? Give me a sign. And the angel says, well, you asked for it, so here's your sign. Probably wished he hadn't have asked. And Abraham is just as human as the rest of these heroes of faith. And we are told in the book Patriarchs and Prophets that Abraham goes back to the same place where the three heavenly messengers visited him shortly before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because he knows that God met him there. And on this dark black night, he is hoping and pleading that God will meet him there again. 
just to confirm the word that he has heard. So he probably goes back to that seat under the trees. Nothing. And he looks up to that black sky, pleading that God will speak to him one more time. Nothing. And the same thoughts that would go through our head are going through Abraham's mind. God, I know your commandments. I know your law. You say, do not kill. How can you be asking me to break one of your commandments? God, what would the the people surrounding me think? All of these heathen nations. I have been vocal. I have shared the principles of your kingdom and your government. They know that I do not stand for child sacrifice. If I offer my son, what will they think? Lord, what will happen to my witness, to the people around me? And all of these questions are swirling around in Abraham's mind. And the answer from heaven is nothing. And Abraham has a choice to make, doesn't he? This bridge of faith that God has called him across is not an easy one like hopping in your car and driving across to the Upper Peninsula. This is a dark, black, difficult, and painful journey. How many of you have been there? So what enables Abraham to finally say, yes, I will follow? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. We get an amazing insight into the thought process that is going on in Abraham's mind and what eventually enables Abraham to say, yes, I will follow no matter what. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now here's the key, verse 19. He accounted that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Abraham came to the conclusion that the same God who had already given him the promise that it was through Isaac that the Messiah would come, that nations would be born. God had given him that promise. And so God would do whatever was necessary to make that promise come true, that word come to reality, even if God had to raise his son from the dead. Now, we look at this thought process that Abraham is going through, and we think from our perspective in the history of the great controversy, well, of course, what a, what a, a courageous decision Abraham makes. Look at all the people that God has raised from the dead. You've got people in the Old Testament, right? Moses dies, God raises him back up. You've got the, the son of the widow, of, uh, the Shunammite woman there. And then we have all the people in the New Testament that Jesus raises back to life. There's, there's the boy of the widow of Nain. There's the little girl in the upper room there. There's, of course, Lazarus. And then you have uh, Eutychus raised back to life by the apostle Paul and so forth. We go down the list, lots of people that God has raised back to life. And then we stop because we realize that when Abraham made this decision on this night, God had never raised anybody back to life. And Abraham exercised faith that God would do something that he had never done before. And that is a good definition of faith. Believing that God can and will do something he has never done before 
in order to fulfill his word. And Genesis 22 verse 3 simply says, and Abraham got up and he obeyed. And today he is remembered as the father of the faithful. He made mistakes like we all do. Some of those are recorded in the Bible. But on this pinnacle experience of his life, pivotal experience of his life, Abraham chose to exercise faith in God and walk across the bridge of faith when it was the most difficult thing to do. And I don't know about you, but in my own life, when I know God has called me, challenged me to exercise faith, it is almost always difficult, right? It's not easy. If it was, it wouldn't require faith. But faith is the bridge by which we enter into the reality of God's Word. What is God challenging you with right now? What, what experience might it be in your life that is requiring greater faith than you have ever needed to exercise before? It's a bridge. God wants to use that experience. Even if God hasn't directly sent it, the Bible says God can use all things for good, right? So where is God trying to take you, to take your family through this experience? Challenge you and encourage you, go forward in faith like Abraham did. Take the promises that God has already given to you and say, God, you've already promised this. You have promised this reality, even though I can't see it or feel it at the moment. I'm going to move forward in faith, trusting that you will do whatever is necessary, even if it's something you've never done before, so that you can fulfill the promise of your word. There is a little animal called the African impala. It's not a large animal, like a small deer. Incredibly beautiful and incredibly fast and athletic. These animals can run about 30 miles an hour and, and jump at least 10 feet high. So these are the kind of animals that nature videographers and photographers love when they go to Africa, right? And you get these amazing chases where some big cat is chasing down an incredibly athletic animal like the African impala. But it's interesting. When you go to a zoo and you go to the Africa section, the African impalas are kept safely in their enclosure with a wall three feet high. There's no moat, no wire, no fence, no cage, just a little wall about this high. How in the world do you keep an animal that athletic that can jump higher than we can reach? How do you keep an animal like that behind a short little wall? And the answer is simple. The African impala will not jump if it cannot see where its feet will land. And the African impala's eyes are about two feet, 10 inches tall. So a wall three feet high is just high enough to keep them locked away in a cage where if they could make a jump of faith, every single one of them could be free. How often are we like those little African impalas? God has given us every promise, everything that we need to enter the greater reality that he has intended for us but we are held back because we cannot see where our feet will land if we actually make that leap of faith. I have to admit far too often, I am like the Impala. But God is calling us to take and make that leap of faith, trusting in his promises, 
in his character, in his goodness. And he says, when you jump, I'll catch you. The final point this morning is that the reality of the word of God is more trustworthy than the evidence of our senses. Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, apologize, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter begins in chapter 1, verse 1, talking about faith. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And he talks about the promises of God a few verses later. Then he talks about the ladder of faith as we grow in our Christian experience. And in verse 19, he talks about the word of God. He says, we also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. And so he talks about the importance, the centrality of the word of God, right? Especially prophecy, the word of God in general. But notice how he begins this verse. He says we have also a more sure word. And the question we have to ask ourselves is more sure than what? He's comparing it to something, isn't he? So what is the word of God more sure than? We find the answer in the immediately preceding verses. Go back to verse 16. Peter writes, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now he is speaking in first person, right? He is sharing his own experience as a disciple of Jesus Christ during those three and a half years that he spent with Jesus here on earth. And he's talking about being an eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus. And we'll read the next verses. He's talking specifically about what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's see what he says, verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Think for a moment of all of the sensory experiences that happened to Peter, James, and John there on the mountain with Jesus. They saw things that no human eyes had ever seen before. Divine glory flashing through uh, humanity. They heard things that no human ears had heard before. They probably even felt, whether it was heat or whatever, right? But this was an incredibly sensory experience, so much so that Peter and the other two disciples, they fall on their faces like dead men, don't they? They're overcome by the majesty of the experience. And when they come to, it's just them and the Jesus they've always known. But look at what Peter is saying here. After he recounts this experience, what I saw, what I heard, what I felt, then he says in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. What is he saying? He is saying that the word of God, the reality that is revealed here, is more trustworthy even than what I experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. And that's important, isn't it? How easy is it for us as human beings to be misled, to be deceived through our senses? The book of Revelation tells us very clearly 
that as we get closer and closer and closer to Jesus Christ's second coming, the devil will more and more actively seek to deceive people, primarily through their senses. In Revelation chapter 13, we can turn there briefly. We get just a short picture of this. Revelation 13, verse 13 says, He doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. At the end of time, people will be making decisions for eternity based on what they see, based on what they hear, based on what they feel to be right, right? This feels right to me. It must be okay. I want to read for you a paragraph that you may have read in the Great Controversy, page 624, speaking about the final deception that will happen shortly before Jesus comes. As the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. The church has long professed to look to the Savior's advent as the consummation of her hopes. Now the great deceiver will make it appear that Christ has come. In different parts of the earth, Satan will manifest himself among men as a majestic being of dazzling brightness. Now, as I read the next few sentences, just notice all of the sensory things that are happening. There is dazzling brightness. What are people seeing? Resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in the Revelation, the glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eyes have yet beheld. The shout of triumph rings out upon the air. Christ has come. Christ has come. The people prostrate themselves in adoration before him while he lifts up his hands and pronounces a blessing upon them as Christ blessed his disciples when he was upon the earth. His voice is soft and subdued, yet full of melody. So not only are people seeing amazing things, they are hearing words they've never heard before, uttered in a tone of voice, we have not heard since Jesus was on earth. Then, in his assumed character of Christ, he claims to have changed the Sabbath to Sunday and commands all the hallow of the day which he has blessed. This is the great deception. How are we making our decisions? Is it through the evidence of our senses or is it based on something more trustworthy than that? Is it on the word of God? On the next page in the same book, Great Controversy, page 625, this exact question is asked. Only those who have been diligent students of the scriptures and who have received the love of the truth. By the way, how do you love the truth? Truth is a person, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We get to love the truth by falling in love with a person. And as you know, you spell love, T-I-M-E, right? We have to spend time with Jesus. Only those who have received the love of the truth will be shielded from the powerful delusion that takes the world captive. By the Bible testimony, these will detect the deceiver in his disguise. To all the testing time will come. By the sifting of temptation, the genuine Christian will be revealed. And now this question is asked, are the people of God now so firmly established upon his word that they would not yield to the evidence of their senses? Would they in such a crisis cling to the Bible and the Bible only? Satan will, if possible, prevent them from obtaining a preparation to stand in that day. He will so arrange affairs as to hedge up their way, entangle them with earthly treasures, cause them to carry a heavy, wearisome burden, that their hearts may be overcharged with the cares of this life, and the day of trial may come upon them as a thief. 
God is calling each one of us to live on a higher level, right? Spiritually speaking. And to exercise that faith in the word of God. So we see in John chapter one that Jesus is the word. And everything we've looked at about this book is true of Jesus. Jesus is calling us across the bridge of faith. And he's calling each one of you and your families today, whatever the situation or the circumstance may be, there is a challenge in front of each one of us right now. There is a greater reality that Jesus has promised for us, but we have to make that decision, don't we? We have to take that step of faith, even if we cannot see with our eyes or feel in ourselves where we're going to land. But when we take that step and we walk across that bridge, Jesus promises, I'm with you every step of the way. And I'm thankful that we have a savior like that. The word became flesh. Tomorrow morning, we're gonna look at verse 14 of John chapter one, where the word becomes flesh. What does that mean for us? We'll take a look at that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, the living word. He not only created everything, but he continues to sustain us. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we're taking breath right now. And sometimes you challenge us, Father, and you call us to exercise faith when it is the most difficult thing to do. But we thank you that that faith can be and is founded in what you have already done in your promises and in your word. And I simply pray this morning that you would enable each one of us here, whether we are here in person, whether we're watching or listening, that you would enable us and strengthen us to walk with you in faith and in the greater reality of your word that you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.